Welcome, uh, Isabel Molina Guzman from the University of um, Illinois Urbana-Champaign, who is professor of Latinx, uh, Latinx studies, Latinx TV, pop culture, but also a dean um, there at the university. Welcome, Isabel. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So we're going to talk about you and like all the cool, amazing things that you've been able to accomplish and fields that you've opened and research projects and programs of new generations that are now following in, in your sort of, in those doors that you've opened for us. But why danger? Okay, so dangerous curves. Like, how did you, like, like did I, you just like, this is, I'm going to write about this? Or yeah, tell us a little bit about that journey. Yeah, no, that was, um, you know, so I actually had, when I started working on this book, I had decided I was leaving academia. Um, I was stepping out of a tenure track job because I'm like, oh, I don't want to do the publish and perish thing. And I took a job as communications director at a nonprofit firm. Um, and as I was doing that job, of course, I was still consuming popular culture and going to the movies and keeping up with the news, as I always do. And I realized that, you know, there had been a shift in terms of the ways, um, you know, the presence of Latinas in both the news and in, the, in television and film at the time. And, uh, and I kind of was really interested in that. Like, oh my gosh, oops, apologies for that. Sorry for that, Fede. I forgot to turn my phone off. So, um, yeah, so I was, you know, so, and, and Elian Gonzalez was happening and I was like watching the, you know, reading the news and watching the news and, um, you know, and the whole story captivated me. And I just kind of thought, this is such an interesting moment, like where we're, you know, we have this visibility both in news and in film and television in ways we've never had it before. And I was intrigued by why. Why is that the case? Why is that happening? And while I was doing my nonprofit job, I started doing research and um, and ended up writing about um, Salma Hayek and Jennifer Lopez at the time, which were the two big Latina actresses in, in Hollywood films. And um, and. Uh, uh, and I ran into a colleague who was working on a similar project and we kind of got together and collaborated on that project. And, and then I just kept, you know, kept researching what was happening and realized, okay, I'm horrible at this nine to five thing. Obviously <laughs> I'm really bad. So um, maybe I should go back to academia. And I did. And I had a mentor who helped me kind of get back on the tenure track and I kept working on these projects. I got a Latino studies postdoc, which enabled me to really kind of uh, finish my writing um, that I had started while I was working at the nonprofit. And, 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 and things kept ballooning, right? The representation kept growing and, um, and I continued to be intrigued about it. And, you know, we had Ugly Betty and then on and on and on. And, um, and that's how the book got written. I just really was out of that, you know, my interest in consuming popular culture and noticing that there was this rise and wanting to understand why 
and what the potential consequences were of that. Um, so for Latino audiences and, and the Latino population as a whole. So. Yeah, no, really important work. Also, um, you know, there are different ways that we can approach representation. And it was also really um, fresh and vital to have someone kind of bringing uh, a kind of audience uh, response, kind of data, uh, kind of approach to the work and not just, kind of, uh, I'm not saying not just because I do this, but uh, right. a kind of cultural studies representation approach. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's always been one of my um, favorite parts of the, re I mean, I, I actually, my first love is ethnographic research, is talking to people. And I knew I couldn't talk to people per se um, with this project, but I wanted to try to get at what it was that people were saying. Um, and so, you know, I, as I was thinking through these texts, I was researching what um, entertainment writers, particularly in the case of movies, were writing both in the U.S. and outside the U.S., and trying to keep track of what audiences were doing or insane in, um, in, in the comments and user groups and fan groups. And so that kind of gave me a sense of, of, of some of the responses by audiences at the time. Um, and it allowed me to contextualize my readings of the text in ways that um, that really I thought helped me to be more nuanced about how I understood why these texts were significant and um, and also the limits of them for audiences, right? The, the ways in which audiences saw them as not really, um, some audiences saw them as not really being the presentations they wanted about themselves. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, so I, for me, that's always been really imp an important part of the work that I do. And that's one of the sort of my next project is really trying to go back to trying to interview um, both producers um, as well as, you know, so both content creators, but also more audiences in terms, you know, um, in terms of how they're experiencing the kinds of images that they're seeing, trying to conduct more interviews, and um, which I love. I love talking to people. So, yeah, me too. Um, Latinx in my, I am so like, uh, just like beyond happy and so excited about your Latinas and Latinos on TV. It's been out now for a little bit, um, but that it's in my pop culture series. Um, is like remarkable, right? Um, tell me, tell us a little bit about that one because it's it's different, right? It's different. It is. It's different. It's um, it's focused on a particular medium, right? It's focused on television, um, and I really tried to take an industry approach to the under to to the book, right? Trying to understand how um, tell the sort of mainstream television industry, the, the, the networks or the cable uh, productions of television content, trying to understand the sort of constraints um, created on the production side and how they shape the content that we eventually see. Um, and so that was a different, you know, trying to shift to sort of understanding the behind the camera politics uh, around race and gender and sexuality and how it shaped the on-screen images and narratives that we see at least through 
um, through what are some of the most popular shows we've had in television history, right? Modern Family being one of the key ones. Um, and so that was uh, very different for me uh, to, to do that. Um, and it really started with my work on Isla's High, which I'm hoping to write about for one of your next books. And so, um, you know, so I, uh, uh, you know, so it started with a talk I did on Isla's High with, with, the, with some of the producers for that show, um, where we talked about the industry and why that show, the Hulu show um, that was produced, you know, by this independent production company was so important for, for young Latina audiences in particular. And so, and that got me thinking then to go back and kind of think through how production shaped all of these other texts um, and in both good and, 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 and not so good ways. And, and so, I loved it. It was a fun project and I'm really glad I got the opportunity to publish it under, under your series. I thought it was a perfect fit for that series. That was just a perfect uh, confluence of events. And, um, and I, I really like that book. It's little but mighty. So. Yeah. You know, those concepts like hipster racism, you know, things that um, I know have been really useful for me, but also for my students. And I'm sure you found that as well, right? That, um, kind of distilling into a concept something that's sort of powerfully generate, uh, generating kind of story in these television spaces, right? Mm -hmm. um, it is. Yeah. Could you give us? Could you give us an example of I don't know a, um, a TV show and uh, maybe hipster racism in operation? Just off. Of well, of course, yeah. I mean, of course. I mean, the the main one is you know the one I talk about the most is Modern Family. I mean, Modern Family. That's part of the reason it's so popular. It's like fueled by it, um, you know. And and Gloria, uh, the main character played by Sofia Vergara, is often the brunt of it. And um, you know, and my one of my favorite examples, I, it's from a two or three seasons ago when she's pregnant, and I talk about this in the book. And she shows up in a green alien costume and um, and a guest in the show uh, starts to comment on how he loves her costume. And she right away starts like reading him uh, the riot card, like, why are you saying this? Because I'm Latina? Because you think I'm undocumented? Um, which, of course, in the history of the show, she was undocumented, um, you know, because you think I'm undocumented because of blah, 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 blah. And her husband pulls her aside. He's like, you need to calm down because all he was doing was commenting you on your show. And let me remind you, you were illegal and, um, and et cetera, et cetera. And then he starts like his calming down is actually more offensive than anything that had happened previously. Right. The sort of, um, you know, he occupies this very like white paternal figure, you know, trying to calm her down by drawing attention to the fact that you were illegal. You, you know, you're acting because you're being an irrational pregnant woman. It's like, oh, really? Like just all of the stereotypes, right, around women and, and Latinas. And, um, you know, and so that's a perfect example of hipster racism. And it's so easy to find. It's interesting because when I see, um, 
there's been some reviews. I was just updating my CV. So I was looking around to see like, oh, who's reviewed the book? And I found a couple of like on websites. And that was one of the comments, the key comments. It's like this hipster racism. Now I can't watch any shows without thinking about it. Because, you know, you realize that so much of the humor on in films and Hollywood films and Hollywood television content, mm-hmm. especially contemporary humor is really fueled in that way, in this double-edged way that you can read it in multiple ways. And mm-hmm. some might think it's funny and others might be like, ooh, that's a little ouchy, right? Like I can't, you know, that's a little, you know, that's really hitting a stereotype there that, that I'm a little uncomfortable with. And, um, you know, and I think modern fam- first the office, uh, in the U.S., and then Modern Family really has pioneered that humor. Yeah, it's interesting because it's kind of like, you know, we see these woke kind of writers uh, and showrunners, and but then like there's these slips that kind of reveal the kind of real, right? Yeah, yeah, and that's ultimately, you know, the the, the critique of Modern Family for me is that their writer's room is just not diverse. It was never meant to be diverse. It was meant to be this like really a story told through heteronormative white middle class, upper middle class white producers, white writers in Hollywood. That was the intent of that show to talk about their experiences. But of course, you know, as you and I know, you you know, they have to diversify the cast in order to try to attract a broader audience base. And, but they're still writing from that sensibility, which is very different, for instance, in Latino produced shows or shows that are produced by, um, you know, trans writers and GLBTQ writers and African-American writers. I mean, this, the narratives are different. The humor is different. It's more nuanced. It's still funny as all get out, but... Um, but it doesn't, you know, and it, and it, and it still like takes those jabs, but not at the, not already, not, not at necessarily, uh, communities that are already vulnerable, you know, um, you know, it, it, it just, yeah, the humor is so much more complicated. So you really see the difference between these shows that are produced by the same type of people who have been writing them for decades and then shows where you're really getting an introduction of new voices that are finally being able to, to tell stories in a way that's different and compelling and funny. And so it's, it's really interesting this time we're living in right now. You know, it's sort of, um, I mean, in a way you've kind of maybe even begun to answer the, this next question about why, you know, the study and teaching of Latinx pop culture or TV um, matters. Um, and, you know, hintified on my block, you know, um, the Shavida, you know, other shows, um, you know, there is something uh, radically different, right? I mean, the, like you were saying, I mean, the, the, the writing to um, maybe a Latinx audience instead of a kind of idealized white woke audience um, but yeah, I don't know, maybe you can share a little bit about the kind of our contemporary moment, but also, yeah, why this actually matters, why teaching this stuff is important. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I have to explain to my eight-year-old what I do for a living, and I'm like, well, mommy teaches pe- people about film and television, and she's like, what? And I'm like, well, you know, I teach them why it's important so that they are able to understand, um, you know, to kind of view 
the culture around them in a way that's critically informed because it's fueled by inequality and also fuels inequality. And, and, and so he's like, so it's not fair. And I'm like, yeah, it's kind of not fair. (laughs) And, and I think that's why it's important, right? That um, I think it's important for people to understand that it matters who's telling the stories. Um, And not that you can't enjoy stories that aren't produced by, by people who aren't from those communities, because you can, and I do, you know, I think Modern Family is funny. I think, you know, all the shows I write about, I watch and I think are funny and I chuckle. And that is part of the reason why I'm interested, right? Because then I think about like, ooh, am I laughing at this? (laughs) But, um, you know, I think it's important for, for students to understand what goes into making those shows and how it's already unequal, right? It's already setting up relationships of inequality on the production side that then shapes the kinds of texts that get produced. And so as consumers, we're grow up in a culture where we come to understand inequality as well, right? We know that not everyone is treated the same. And so it's important for them to put that together, right? How these shows come are both fueled by their own inequalities within how they're made, but they're also, um, sent out into a culture that's defined by inequality as well. And so how those texts are consumed then can be particularly, you know, how we as audiences make sense and use those texts can be really important, can be, you know, can either um, reinforce someone's stereotypic attitudes about the communities that are represented um, or can be, self-reaffirming for communities who have been erased. Mm-hmm. And so, um, so, but, you know, you really under, like for me, you have to put that together, right? You have to, and so I think it's so important to teach about television, to teach about film, to teach about all of the kinds of media that we consume in that critical way mm-hmm. so that people understand, you know, how it's shaped by potential inequality in terms of its making, but also in terms of how audiences make sense of it and how it really connects to our broader culture in, in ways that are, that, that are potentially negative and that it allows people to continue to hold values that are maybe racist or sexist or homophobic. And also in the way that it potentially provides moments of, of pleasure and release and recognition to communities that are often erased. So that's why I think it's important. And um, I don't know, I think it's fun to teach about, of course, these contents, but I also think it's actually really socially and politically important as well. Well, if you don't mind, I'm going to take that little clip and have that at the very beginning of all of my Latinx courses. (laughs) so that They they hear it straight from Isabel. Um, (laughs) Thank you. um, yeah, so we've kind of talked a little bit about this. It is surprising to me, you know, that, gosh, we, you know, we are the majority underrepres- historically underrepresented in this country. Yeah. Um, and yet, you know, um, we're still kind of not represented. And when we are represented, and this is, you know, I'm talking about shows that are not where you don't have a Latinx, Latino, Latina in sight anywhere. Um, You know, we're still like pretty stereotypically kind of presented. Um, I don't know what it, 
I mean, how does it, what do you, can you sleep at night? I don't know, you know? <laughs> you know, sometimes, I, I mean, whenever I teach this, I always get, it's always really like gut churning. And, and I, you know, I really, I share the, the data with students on, um, you know, there are all these wonderful report cards that come out from um, the, um, you know, National Association of, is it um, National Association of um, Coalition of Latina Media Producers? I forget the initials that it stands for, but they put out a TV report card. Holly, um, USCLA and USC put out uh, diversity report cards as well. And, um, and um, the, it all comes down to the fact that over the last, I don't know, since we got film and television, right? Like 1920s for film, 1940s, 50s for, for, um, for television, there are hardly any writers of color and even less Latino writers, right? Like African-American writers and producers are still underrepresented and, and yet they are like, I don't know, five percentage points ahead of where Latinos are and then Asian American producers and Native American producers forget it. And so, um, you know, I, I think that's why we are so underrepresented. Like we are not part of the industry uh, in ways that we're able to make a difference. And that part is really, you know, to me, when you think about that, that part really makes me upset. Um, Cause that's just straight up like structural racism <laughs> in play, right? That's just, that's an industry that has a serious race and gender problem, although it's doing better with gender um, and has done nothing to address it. And it's not because there's a lack of Latino writers. That's not the case. The, the talent is there. The actors are there. The producers are there. You know, there's people graduating from film school. There's, there's excellent writers out there. It's because they're not part of that network. And, um, and that's wrong. And so I usually, I love to present, when I talk about, you know, the lack of representation, I love to share that data with students to encourage them to think about um, the importance of why the creative industries matter, why it matters to become, you know, to think about being artists, to think about being producers, movie makers, uh, script writers, mm -hmm. because it, it, it matters to have those voices in the industry at the same time that we need to make our voices heard with the people that control the means of production um, and I think they're slowly getting it, but it's slow. And until they start really responding to that, to the fact that they need to open up the creative doors to allow for a bigger diversity of voices, we're not going to see those numbers change. Yeah. Um, um, you kind of touched on this a little bit, but is there a particular kind of, I don't know, um, something that you do in the class, because I know you're, you, the students love you, you're sort of award-winning teacher. Um, is there a, something that is a trademark Isabel kind of thing that you do in the classroom to, to just, you know, take the students somewhere new or, yeah, is there something? Well, I mean, I think my two favorite techniques is having them do um, 
So I have them usually, you know, we do a lot of discussion, of course, even in the large lecture course. And just having them kind of sit through and, and, um, and in class analyze a scene or, you know, and then share their, their sort of analysis with others. And that usually is such a great eye-opening thing, especially when you have a diverse classroom where not, you know, where you have, um, you know, maybe like 20, 30% underrepresented students, maybe 30% underrepresented students, which is big, right, for a predominantly white institution. And then you have, you know, 50, 60% white and some uh, Asian students and some others mixed in there. Um, and to have everyone sitting around the table sharing their readings of of one particular scene with each other um, is really eye-opening for the students to see that, oh, what I thought was funny, somebody else didn't think was funny, or what I thought was a good representation, somebody else actually was really upset by. Mm -hmm. um, and, and sometimes in very unexpected ways, like we saw, I'm forgetting the name of that movie with, um, uh, with, I think it's Judy Reyes um, about the transgender kid. What's the name of that movie? Um, forgetting it now. Oh, such a good movie. Um, you know, we were in a class that was fairly diverse uh, along those lines. And, um, and there was a, a, a white kid who spoke up and, you know, he's, you know, he was like very Catholic, you know, but you know, sort of, you know, my reading of him was that he was going to be fairly conservative. And then we saw that movie, Gun Hill Road. We oh. saw that movie and um, yeah, we saw that movie and he was like, wow, I couldn't, it was really hard for me to watch to see the violence inflicted on the, on the transgender um, kid because my best friend is transgender and I couldn't stop thinking about that. And it just opened up, such a great conversation in class about that and in, in these unexpected ways. And so for me, those are my favorite moments. Um, and the other thing that I love to do, which kid, which the students love um, is actually forcing, them, not forcing them, but assigning them to make their own movies. Mm. Um, and, you know, while trying to avoid the stereotypic tropes, that are often used to tell stories. Um, and that is usually a lot of fun because you get some really creative, um, you get them producing some really creative content, but also how hard it is to tell a story in a short amount of time without relying on stereotypes. And so those are probably two of my favorite exercises that I think students really enjoy and unexpectedly get a lot out of without, um, without expecting to, right? Because, um, you know, students love to make movies and so they don't expect that they're gonna actually, that, the, that making a movie is gonna be so hard to avoid kind of a standard practice that's used in every movie. Um, and so they really, it allows them to kind of have a different perspective on the role of stereotypes in films and, and television shows and, why they're so hard and also why it's important to have other voices at the table. Yeah. And uh, the work involved, right? The work. The work. Yeah. And it's so hard, right? If you're told you can't use any of the, you know, it has to be a story, uh, 
it, usually during my Latino film class, right? So it's like, you know, a story relevant to what we've been talking about. Um, it can be fictional, it can be, you know, documentary style, but you cannot use, you can't rely on stereotypic tropes to avoid them. And, um, and so, I mean, the films are great. I love them. I mean, I actually, you know, uh, haven't done it yet, but want to use them in my classes because I think they're, you know, they're so clever. Uh, but they also, you know, the common is it was really hard to do, you know, really hard to make it, to make a film and then really hard to make one that avoided stereotypes, that avoided stereotypic tropes in the making of it because they're so used to, you know, you were so used to telling stories in that way. So yeah, visual stories. Right? So the kind of million dollar question for 2020, <laughs> the Super Bowl 2020 halftime performances, how did you respond? I couldn't believe it, frankly. I was like, this is a, I mean, it was like night and day because I would talk, you know, I was talking to my, I'm not a football fan. So I, you know, I, I, I do watch the commercials afterwards, uh, but I, I don't generally watch the game but my parents do and my sisters do and so they were calling me that night like oh my gosh did you see Shakira and JLo they looked fabulous oh my gosh they were so awesome they were like they're so you know they, they, it was a great show and then I wake up the next morning and I see oh that there was a protest movement against what they were wearing and I was like wow I couldn't believe it I mean it's so interesting for a whole range of reasons, right? Women of color are always hypersexualized, number one. So why was it so inappropriate that, that this is how they chose to represent themselves or not, right? Like, we don't know. Like, their handlers may have insisted, but more than likely they were sort of, you know, participants in how they costumed themselves. But, you know, it's not like it's a particularly unusual representation to see, right? Like, this is usually how we see Latinos represented in these very hypersexualized ways. And so, um, you know, but I think, you know, for me, I have to assume that it was the fact that you had two women of color, two Latinas, uh, two gorgeous Latinas with amazing bodies, right, doing their thing during um, the halftime show of one of the America's most iconically, uh, you know, revered moments, right? Where you're supposed to have, I think, this affirmation of whiteness, of like, you know, of, of white culture, ironically enough, even though there are hardly any white players in the game, right? Um, and the audiences for the NFL are quite, you know, very diverse, right? They're, I mean, everyone watches uh, across all categories watch football. And so, you know, but I think for a lot of those white audiences, it was really disruptive to see these two Latina women doing their thing during, you know, I guess during this moment. And, and, and I think, especially in the context of the Trump era, right, where we've gotten like really cultivated this anti-Latino attitude. Yeah, it just, it was the perfect, it was the perfect dynamite. I mean, cause literally like, I mean, 
all all of the Latino audiences that I know watch the show love were like they were so like it was amazing it was the best halftime show I can't believe how good J Lo looks Shakira looked amazing it's like and then I literally wake up the next day I'm like what there's a protest <laughs> it's like yeah people are protesting the halftime show okay so. <laughs> um as we kind of wrap this up, uh, Isabel, so um, I, I know um, in, other, in another space you talked about the kind of vitality and kind of analog modes of creation and new generations kind of going to zines and things like that. And it got me thinking too, that there, it does seem to be that television and Latinx, at least, um, you know, the Netflix platform and mm -hmm. other streaming platforms, there's a real sense of um, young people, young Latinxes, um, and their complexity and their complex ranges of emotions and thoughts and complex experiences that are now finally kind of making their way into the television space. Um, but yeah, on my block comes to mind Hentified, but maybe there's something for you too that's just kind of a special uh especially interesting or that jumps out for you yeah i mean um you know i i i i have not that much time unfortunately to watch as much television or streaming as i would like because of my eight-year-old but probably i mean for me as i mentioned earlier uh, one of the more exciting things about the kinds of representations that we're seeing on these um, various platforms is the diversity of, of Latino, Latino, Latinx experiences that are being represented. And, you know, I'll, I'll give you one again from a sort of mainstream, um, from a mainstream platform, um, Charmed, you know, it, I know it, there was a lot of controversy around that show because of the casting, right? But I think the fact that the three characters are Latin, clearly Latinas, and one of them is is queer. She's a lesbian, um, and you know the other like non-Latina actress is representing an Afro-Latina. And I'm thinking, you know that that is pretty for a mainstream kind of television show. That representation of of Latinidad is outside the box, and um, you know, I think. I mean, two of two of the actresses are actually uh, um, mixed race, and so you know the fact that that um, you know that you have this you know Latinas who look very different from the J Lo's or the Shakiras, um, and whose experiences are also very different from you know the sort of heteronormative narratives that we often get about Latina women in particular, about Latinas in particular, um, is really fun. Like I, I love, I, you know, and, and it's, I've been looking, you know, what I'm looking at with that show is the user comments and how crazy fans of the original show are because it isn't white women or the same white women representing those characters. And so it gives you a sense of how radical it can be to really, um, you know, changed narratives in this way, right? They made one of the characters a lesbian, the none of the characters are white. And 
Um, and so fans of the original show hate it because of that. And at the same time, it's opened up reception for, um, for audiences who, um, you know, who, again, don't generally see themselves and might not have turned into that show, but are really, who re really like this reboot of this, of this, um, of this kind of iconic American show from the, from the 90s and early 2000s. And so, um, you know, so that's, I think, an example of the way that um, opening up the right, and the writer, the, the creator for that show was the same creator that did Jane the Virgin. And she's not Latina but she brought on a very diverse writing team and a very diverse production team for that show. Mm. And so I think that's the power of, again, um, you know, diversifying who's telling the story and then, you know, opening up what kinds of stories you get to tell um, and, and how to do it in a way that's really um, compelling um, to audiences. And I, and for me, that's a perfect example of that, right? Like she, um, you know, the, the produce, the creator of the show, you know, was really um, smart about, um, about how she has tried to uh, create this very different kind of story featuring characters that you don't normally get to see. Yeah, that's great. Um, wow. Thanks, Isabel. Isabel Molina Guzman, thank you for joining me for a video cast on Professor Latinx. No problem. It was my pleasure, Freddie, as always. Thank you. And uh, I'll, we'll be in touch. Yep, definitely. Take care. Okay. Bye-bye.